with me to the second chapter in Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we may again read from verse 13 to the end of verse 15. Colossians chapter 2, reading from verse 13 to the end of verse 15. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. In this letter, Paul, inspired by the Spirit, addresses himself to problems that had arisen within the congregation at Colossae. And one of the problems was the desire on the part of some to move away from the simplicity of the gospel. And they wished to introduce novelties of various descriptions. Now we don't exactly know what the heresy at Colossae was. There is no express reference as to what was happening. We can only infer from what Paul's references are that there were aspects of Christian truth which Paul felt required to be emphasized as an antidote to what was happening in the congregation there. Basically, the heresy was Jewish. There was the desire for legal ordinances, for circumcision, food regulations, the keeping of holy days, and certain aspects of the Sabbath and uh, occasions when there were other feasts as at New Moon. There is some reference to angelic worship and adoration. In it all we have a gathering together of many shades of opinion desiring to mix all this up in a Christian practice which was anathema to what was spoken and written in the scriptures. <clears throat> now Paul's answer to the, the heresy was to put uh, against the unscriptural tradition what was scriptural 
the true doctrine of Christ. And my dear friends, where the word fails to correct any leanings or moving away from what is acceptable in the scriptures, you may be sure that you and I will fail. We are very, very foolish if at any time we think that we can overcome the passions of the human heart through personal application of uh, our understanding of life. The Apostle Paul was an exceptional man in so many different ways. He himself made no boast about it. But very clearly any man who had the ability and the capacity to benefit from one of the greatest teachers of his day, Gamaliel, he obviously had an acuteness of mind himself. But Paul never turned to philosophical arguments. He didn't turn to any other arguments. But he applied himself as God enabled him to understand the scripture, to apply it, and to leave it there. Now Paul says that Christ is the very image of God. And what he means by that is that Christ is the embodiment, the one who expresses bodily the fullness of the divine essence. Now we use that word essence for want of something that we can uh, adapt to describe what we cannot describe. What is God? God is a spirit. But however much you go on to define who God is, you are left with the unfathomable. What goes well beyond anything that any human mind or angelic mind can plumb by way of its depth. Now Paul also says that in what Christ has done that no other agency had any part by way of helping or bringing to pass what Christ achieved. To use the words of the prophet Isaiah, he trod the winepress alone. And we know very well in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the blood sweat was pouring from him, that the anguish into which he entered was an anguish that isolated him. Peter, James, John, 
could not in any way comfort him in that situation, he entered into something again which you and I cannot understand. We make reference to it. When we speak of the forsaking of God, we speak about something that we cannot expound. Now there are two things that we might look at just for a little while. First of all, the triumph of Christ. And then the elements in that triumph. But first of all, the triumph of Christ. Now the triumph of Christ, although it featured in a country such as Palestine of that day, the death took place at a place called Calvary. Nevertheless, its triumph, its effects, the benefits of his death applied to all of the universe. And Paul brings out that very clearly in his letter to the Romans in the 8th chapter where he speaks about the whole creation waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. And very clearly in that context he is not talking about human beings and he is not talking about angels but he is talking about the creation in a way that we cannot in any way anticipate how this great restoration is going to take place. But the scripture does say that the whole creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God and that because the triumph of Christ was a cosmic triumph. It was something that applied to the whole world. Now, there are many differences of opinions in some aspects of uh, what Christ has done. But let us remind ourselves that the efficacy of what Christ achieved does not depend on our explanation or on our understanding. Just as you have it through the Old Testament and right into the New, you find that the counsel of God stands. And there is no jubiety with respect to the emphasis of Scripture. And the more that you reflect upon this aspect of the revelation of God, the more hope you receive with respect to what lies ahead of us. God help us if it was in the hands of denominations. God help us if it was in the hands of ministers or of elders or of members. God help us if it was in the hands of governments and we depended on our politicians. It doesn't depend 
upon any of these uh, parts of humanity, it is something that rests foursquare upon him upon whose shoulders the government lies. Now, when we speak of the triumph of Christ in terms of what Paul was writing to the church at Colossae, he speaks with a joyful confidence. There is no defeatism there. And there ought never to be. I know how personally believers feel. The psalmist says, My flesh and heart doth faint and fail. And if you have known of people with heart trouble, and when there is a failing, one is told that it can be agonizing. The psalmist was aware personally from the aspect of the indwelling of sin in his own life, the conflict that raged and reduced him to a sense of increasing weakness. But the psalmist goes on to say, My heart and flesh doth faint and fail, but God doth fail me never. We sometimes look around us in so many different ways. And we are like Peter when he looked at the waves. We forget that Christ is walking on the waves. And we ourselves turn to look at what we can do. And when we do, naturally, we begin to sink and we begin to cry. But Christ did not sink or begin to sink as he walked the waves of Galilee. And he is still controlling the affairs of the universe. The story is told of an incident, I think it was in the First World War, and there was a heavy engagement with the enemy. And this chaplain was recording afterwards his own experience of it. And when the gunfire was at its loudest and shells bursting all around him, tremendous aggression of every description, he said the most reassuring thing that he found in that situation was the message that was telegraphed back to headquarters and the message was everything is under control. The fighting was fierce. There was death on every side. But the, those involved in directing uh, opposition to meet the enemy's onslaught were telegraphing back 
to headquarters, everything is under control. And my dear friends, there is no question about it. Everything is under control. Now, it's a strange thing when you look at uh, the death of Christ that only a believer could come to the conclusion that Calvary presents the triumph of the most wonderful description. A non-Christian would find it very difficult to understand. He sees Christ rejected by his own nation. He sees him betrayed by one of his own disciples, Judas. He sees him denied and deserted when the situation was at its most threatening. He sees him denied and deserted by his disciples. He sees him put to death by the authority of the Roman procurator. He sees him hanging on a cross limp. He sees him deprived of all freedom. It appears as if the whole situation is a total defeat. If there is a victory, it would seem to be the victory of pride, prejudice, jealousy, venom, brutality. Everything that is meanest in the human makeup seems to flower. And under that great onslaught, we see the Christ of God. Mockingly referred to, he saved others. Himself, he cannot claim. So often the symbol of the Christian is the symbol of the cross. A very, very strange symbol. But yet, no one can deny the tremendous turnabout in the attitudes of the followers of Jesus after his resurrection. They were lion-hearted men and women. They were proud to stand under the banner of King Jesus. And they considered it the highest honor when they suffered because of those who were determined to blot out the memory of Jesus from off the face of the earth. Now, the Christian sees things not as it appears, but as it really is. But it requires the insight that only the Holy Spirit can give. Now, as a generation, we have advanced technically. We have opportunities 
of educating ourselves that our fathers didn't have. And from time to time we have presented to us through the media some of the recognized world experts and they have all the opportunity that their position affords them to present as they see it the things of life and of course they sit in judgment upon Jesus man is incorrigibly arrogant and there is an arrogance in us all a horrible arrogance and somehow we think because we have a little understanding that our our understanding can enable us to sit in judgment upon the mystery of our being and particularly the greatness of our creator and our saviour and so you have it at this present time this film that is creating such a sensation on the other side of the Atlantic and causing ripples in our country and we see the audacity of presenting a Jesus that is foreign to us in the only source book that we have of the Son of God. But let us remember that intelligence of itself does not make a Christian. You and I can sit down with some of the most gifted writers and stand on their shoulders reading into these things but except a man be born again he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And that doesn't mean just a death that he will enter into glory. It means that he cannot see except he receive this spiritual insight the reality of uh, what is declared for us in the scripture. Well then, to move away from that aspect we see in this triumph here and it's a triumph that extends to the whole world we see the conquest of evil. Now the Bible tells us that this would take place. The seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, shall bruise the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman, and very clearly that is interpreted by the scriptures itself as referring to Messiah. The ultimate crushing of Satan is something that is quite definitely declared down through the scriptures and it is very interesting as you go over the lives 
that God was pleased to honor in the greatest way their considerable weakness and lack of insight into the great conflicts upon which hinged the progress, the march forward of the purpose and the counsel of God. You have only to think of the birth of our Lord to realize in that situation how Mary received the message but she didn't broadcast it she tucked it away in her thoughts she reflected upon it she didn't even discuss it with Joseph to whom she was espoused and Joseph himself was so suspicious of Mary whom he loved a woman of obvious purity that he was prepared uh, to separate his uh, relationship with her. Now we can see in this great conquest of Christ our blessed Lord the abortive assaults the attacks of Satan. When we think of Herod's murder of the children of Bethlehem and you would wonder in that situation how the infant Jesus would escape. How did he escape? God spoke to Joseph in a dream. A dream? What do you think of a dream? Probably you have them by the score every night or some nights. And if I or anybody else began telling you with great solemnity about our dreams and interpreting and imply, applying them, you would begin to think there is a little simplicity about that person we're not going to attach great importance to a dream but God used the dream the most common way of communication there was no doubt in Joseph's mind he recognized in the dream the authority of the one who in whom authority resides. And we see Joseph taking the unusual step of moving with the child, Jesus. The attempt of Herod, strong and powerful and uh, absolutely merciless as he was, was aborted. We see in the wilderness temptations, Christ is tempted to bypass the cross to avoid the crown, the crown of thorns and all that was involved in the suffering there but we see how in that situation our Lord applies scripture one after the other and we see how 
strengthless Satan was as he tempted our Lord. We see the popular attempt by the people to make Jesus king. They wanted to make him king. They recognized in him what was exceptional. Jesus wouldn't have it. We see the contradiction of Peter of the necessity of the cross. We see demons exposed and cast out. We see the betrayal of Judas. And if anybody knew Christ well, Judas did. If you want to know a man or a woman, the only way that you will really get to know him when you're involved in financial transactions. Why is it that solicitors are always counselling people to make up their wills because so many families have split up after the death of parents and a bitterness has crept into the situation. Judas knew Jesus and he saw as no other disciple saw how Jesus lived for the things of God. How little it meant to him what other people were breaking their necks to lay hold on. Position, power, wealth, possession. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. We see how the uh, very situation in which Christ stands, how the order of nature or the disorder of nature is recovered, how the strong man fully armed is overcome by Christ. So much for the triumph of Christ. Let us look at some of the elements in this triumph. Well, there is first of all the forgiveness of sin. And there is secondly the overthrow of the principalities of power. Let us think a little about the forgiveness of sin. Sin is a terrible albatross to hang around anybody's neck. I'm sure that all of us, certainly some of us, can look back to acts in the past, unkind, improper, and we would give anything that these things had never happened in our lives. When you reflect upon the barbarity of human nature, when you think of the aggression that is in us, we need our policemen, we need our soldiers, 
We need various protections to protect ourselves. And why is this? Because the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Now, no man can forgive a sin. No man. Yes, he can accept the confession of another man and he can pass it over but he cannot blot it out. You remember Paul how in later years he reflected upon the occasion when Stephen was being stoned to death and with very bitter reflection Paul recalls his part in that stoning he stood and held the clothes of those that cast the stones holy Stephen calling upon his God do you remember how Paul again says of himself that in his own estimation he was less than the least of all saints ah my dear friends we take offense if we are belittled and we often try to push ourselves to a place of prominence among our fellow men how different to what real piety is and we find Paul saying less than the least of all sins why? because he persecuted the church of God there was something awfully cruel vindictive, dictatorial autocratic about the apostle Paul before his conversion he was absolutely ruthless and it didn't matter whether you were a man, a woman, or a child. It didn't matter. If you stood in his way, then you had to go. And it was only when he was tamed by Christ that we see the fruits of grace. And Paul, in a state of grace, coming to this estimation of himself full of regret less than the least of all sins and how do you remove what you have done Paul couldn't do it with Stephen Stephen was dead and however much he regretted it he was part of that company that showed their animosity and malice and venom on that day. He couldn't do it with many of the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ, who had suffered horribly because of his organized persecution. And Paul had a gift to organize. 
Now, Paul speaks about the forgiveness of sin. It was very precious to him. And if you have lived with your own sin, and if you have come face to face with your own sin, there is nothing in this world that would be more precious to you than that these sins should be blotted out. We're thinking of the Lord's table, if the Lord spares us on the morrow. What about the people who go to the Lord's table? Oh, they must be good people. They must be holy people. Of course. But what does that goodness consist of? A perfect life? A sinless life? A life that is full of virtuous things? No, my dear friend. No, a thousand times no. I'm sure most of you read or heard of Rabbi Duncan administering the sacrament. When he was handing the cup, this woman couldn't stretch out her hand. Somehow, her unworthiness gripped her to the point that she couldn't stretch out her hand to take the cup. Take it, woman. Take it, woman. It's for sinners. And not one person goes lawfully to the Lord's table but stands in the place where that woman stood of another day. People who are aware that if God were to mark iniquity against them, not before they were converted, But if he should mark iniquity against us on any day, none of us should stand. And you know that I'm quoting from Psalm 130. Well, what is, what has Paul, what has Paul to say about Christ? For me, says Paul, to live is Christ. He can't see past Christ. All other things and people have their own place. But infinitely higher than high, there stands his Redeemer. For me to live is Christ and to die is gay. And Paul is in the spirit. He is being winged along with this tremendous enthusiasm holy enthusiasm within him and he is declaring what Christ has done now he's not talking about theory he is not talking about something that he has worked out by a careful process of reasoning no he is talking from experience there's nothing like it my dear friends it is only experience that will teach us along the journey that Christ alone has a preeminence and a preciousness that is uniquely his. Well, Paul writes about the handwriting, the written code, 
What is Paul referring to? Well, he's scarcely referring to the law. Paul regarded the law as holy, righteous, and good. Romans 7.12 It must be a reference to the broken law. The misdeeds, the enmity, the animosity towards God, towards his law, and he is speaking about the accusations that the law leveled against him because he was continually breaking it. Isn't that where you and I stand? The handwriting was a handwritten document, so we are told. And it particularly uh, indicated indebtedness. If you like an IOU, something which you owed, and to make it a document that could be brought legally against you if you failed in future days to repay, you signed the document. And Paul uses three verbs describing these debts. He first speaks about cancelling the bond. Well, you know what it is to cancel a bond. It is as if it never existed. And then he uses the word wiping it clean. You know how on a blackboard, if you're writing with chalk, that you can take a wet cloth, you wipe it clean. It's as if the writing, the writing that has been wiped out, was never there. And there is a third expression where it says that Christ took the handwriting and nailed it to the cross. Some commentators think that this is a reference to the title, the tablet that was fixed over a crucified person's head. And on that tablet was written the crimes for which he was being put to death. Now, Paul says here how Christ Uh, how he forgives trespasses blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us and took it out of the way and nailed it to his cross now in this world there are various elements And the Bible is very clear in making reference to evil powers, to Satan and satanic spirits. And attempts have been made, as attempts are being made, to read into what Christ did here, 
spoiling principalities and powers as a reference to people with authority in this world. But across the teaching of the scripture it is impossible but to come to one conclusion that the evil of this life is something which Christ himself made an open show of these powers destroying them and taking away the usurped position that they were taking in this world what was involved in this overthrow well there was first of all the stripping of these power disarming them of their weapons and power and again he says he made a public spectacle of them showing them as powerless powers and then triumphing over them by the cross and again commentators see in this reference most probably the procession of captives as was practiced in those days when celebrating a victory and when the triumphant march went through the city there were captives there to remind the people of the victory that had been obtained what does it mean it says the scripture says that Christ having spoiled principalities and powers he made a show of them openly now there are various ways in which we can approach this subject but let us confine ourselves to just one or two thoughts how did Christ make a public spectacle of them after all as the non-Christian would see it and as indeed the disciples saw it what happened at Calvary was anything but a triumph it was only when they were taught out of the scriptures and understood the significance of what happened that they were enabled to come to the conclusion and to the conviction born again to a new hope what happened well first of all there is the open declaration not only by the words of Christ not only by his actions but also by his death the self giving love of Christ now we don't know anything of this self-giving love which can only in its uniqueness be attributed to Christ can a woman forsake or forget her sucking child yes the scripture says she may 
there may be times of great trial and suffering when a mother is in such a disoriented condition that she is unable to come to the assistance or to think of the suckling that depends upon his mother for his very life. But God does not forget. And the self-giving of Christ from beginning to the end was an open display and a wonderful display. You remember how he spoke to John at the cross with reference to his mother? Don't you think that he had enough on his mind? All the trauma of the experiences in the garden leading up to being stretched on the cross. He spoke to his mother. Or he spoke to John. Behold your mother. And John tells us, the gospel tells us, how John took the mother of Jesus from that day to his own home. Wasn't it strange that there was no provision for his mother? Did she not have a home of her own? Ah well, obviously she didn't. But she had what was much better than any earthly home, the care of her loving and living Redeemer. What about that thief on the cross? His pangs of conscience the awful conviction that he was dying because he deserved to die and yet aware that beside him that there was somebody who had a kingdom and whose kingdom eh, was the paradise of God remember me Lord when thou comest to thy kingdom what did Christ say? Today you shall be with me in paradise. And what about the awful blasphemy? What about the soldiers that were gambling for his clothes? You hear that wonderful prayer. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. The self-giving of Christ. And remember, it is God giving himself. Do people ever say to you, Oh, Christians, the biggest crooks, the ones you have to watch yourself most, What are you to say to them when they make wild accusations? All that you have to say, I am not commending to you. 
myself or any other Christian or any denomination I'm only commending to you Jesus Christ after all he's the only one that you can commend in the greatest sense there are obvious flaws there are none in him and his self-giving and of course many do recognize who don't accept the truth of Christ that if people lived as Christ did the world would be a very different place well there is that first open show the triumph of God the self-giving it's holy, it's divine I wouldn't do it and you wouldn't do it only God could do it there is again his obedience there is a wonderful meekness about Christ he is not harassed he is not irritable he is not acting out of character he is obeying he is obeying lovingly he is obeying quietly he is obeying in the most emphatic way remember that Christ was not compelled to die he gave his life he gave his life whatever was instrumental in what led up to his death what allowed these instruments of death to work upon him was the fact that he allowed them he gave them and we see how in this obedience he remained free uncontaminated and compromised and of course we look at the resurrection of Christ the grave couldn't hold him how foolish of Caiaphas how foolish of the members of the Sanhedrin as they set up their watch that Christ could be chained he was born free and he remained free and he set his people free if the son make you free you shall be free indeed (coughs) our beautiful Lord and Saviour whose death we hope to remember on the morrow we see him in the grave but only for an appointed time he rose and remember what his resurrection did it did not achieve deliverance our deliverance from sin and death but his resurrection has brought the assurance that we shall be holy and perfectly delivered from sin and death my dear Christian friend if the sin that is in you upsets you 
remember that that is only what all the holy men of the Bible subscribe to in their own experience. And remember, it's an experience that is the direction and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that is where the sheer beauty and the harmony of the book of Psalms comes into its own. The very description of the experiences of the child of God. But someday, someday, there will be no sin. There will be no death. The contamination of it all is something that will come to an end. But what about Christians? Well, as in the case of their master and as in the case of their Lord, life speaks of conflict. Any man who thinks that to believe in Christ is to sail into a serenity that will continue with him. And anybody who thinks that the joy of the Lord is to be released from all the inner conflict that was common to the saints of the Bible is living in cloud cuckoo land. It is not according to the reality of the situation. May God enable us all to meet the situation in dependence upon himself. Stop looking to people. Let us pray. O oh Lord, <coughs> 